0: Good morning, everybody. That's better. It's like, man, that guy's voice is really quiet. What's up with that? So how are you guys doing today? Do you guys have a good summer? Yeah, you had a nice summer? See, I, I had a great summer. Uh, many of you probably don't know this, but I have an uncle. He's down in the States. He's a sheriff in a small town. And he invited my family and I, Sarah, and our son, Cadman, down to visit him for the 4th of July weekend. He lives right on the coast there. And so we go to, we're about to go down, but then he warns us. He says, well, we've had a, some tragedy has struck the town. There's actually been a shark attack off the coast of the town, so maybe you don't want to come. He we said, well, we'll come. And they didn't really think anything was, was going to happen. But then another attack happened, and then so my uncle said, whoa, 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 we need to do something about this. So he says, let's shut down the beach. And of course, it's a tourist town, kind of like Harrison, and shutting down the beach, it's, you know, there's a lot of money at stake. So the mayor and the council people and the business owners all came and said, no, 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 we can't shut down the beach, let's just put up extra security. And so my uncle gives in and says, okay, fine. And so we're all down there, and lo and behold, another shark attack happens. And Everybody's freaking out. There's pandemonium. They they shut down the beach and they say we got to do something about this So they decide to organize a fishing derby of sorts And so they gather people together and they're gonna go and they're gonna try to catch this big shark That's been attacking people and so they all go out and then one of them actually catches this enormous shark And so they're like woohoo! We got the shark, right? We can all go back into the water and so they open up the beaches again, but there's a problem there's this marine biologist and he comes and he looks at the shark and he's measuring the shark's mouth and he measured the other bites and he said, no, guys, this is, this is the wrong shark. You, you have the wrong shark. And So my uncle's trying to tell them and they're not believing and they open up the beaches again and, of course, there's another shark attack. So this now everybody's freaking out. My uncle says, okay, that's enough. He grabs the marine biologist, he grabs this surly seaboat captain and then they go out and they're going to hunt down this shark. The problem is, though is the shark was actually hunting them. And so lo and behold, the, bo- the shark starts battering the boat and breaks holes in it, and it starts to sink. And they get, the shark gets the sea captain. Everybody's scared. Finally, my uncle gets the CO2 canister into the mouth of the great shark, lifts up his rifle, and... Pfft, he blows up the shark. He was amazing. You should have been there. Wait, what? Why are you guys laughing? <laughs> so, That's Jaws, right? Okay, here's, here's another story. For, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Chris Battle. I'm the Lake Arock campus pastor. And for the first 29 years of my life, I, I wasn't a believer. I wasn't a, I wasn't a Christian. And then 16 of those years, the latter 16, not the former, I was in a heavy addiction, drugs, alcohol, lived on the street, all of that. But then, amazingly, I met Jesus, and my entire life was changed. Now, if you were to hear me tell both of those stories, some people might say that I actually was imputing myself into a story, into something that wasn't true, into a fairy tale of sorts, either the Jaws movie or this Jesus Changes Lives story. Or maybe you can resonate with something like this. Perhaps this happened to you or someone you know during your faith. You you grew up in a Christian home. You went to camp. You put your faith in Jesus. And then you started to go to youth group and maybe even went on on a mission trip to Mexico. You have some questions, but everybody around you seems to know what they're doing, seems to believe really well. So maybe you even believe that you believe, you know? But then one day you meet some friends... Go off to college, see a YouTube video or two, and you start to, to, to believe that what you've been sold is a little like believing in Santa Claus or the tooth fairy or leprechauns. You believe you, you've been bought into uh, or sold a lie and now you, you want your money back. Does that sound familiar? Or maybe you've never had faith. From the beginning, your parents believed and you thought it was just some fairy tale. Or maybe your parents didn't believe and, and you just followed their lead. That that was my story. Not growing up in a Christian home, there was no belief. So please hear me when I say that if if you're, you or someone that you know thinks that Christianity is just another fairy tale, I, I understand why that can be because I, I did, I believed that for most of my life. And this is why I'm so excited to be able to be here this morning and talk to you about this topic. It really, really hits home for me because I did spend 29 years, you could say mad at a God that I claimed didn't exist. That it was all just a big fairy tale and people were kidding themselves. Now look at me, (laughs) I'm a quitter. So this morning I wanna simply address the question through a text of scripture and then explore why this question has been raised in the first place. Does that sound good? Awesome. So we're in 2 Peter this morning. If you want to turn there in your Bibles, it'll be up on the screen. I'll, of course, be reading it, or if you have your, your phone or tablet. I'm in the, the New Living Translation this morning. <clears throat> in 2 Peter, we're going to read verses 16 through 21. And so when Peter writes, we, he's talking about himself and, and the other apostles or disciples. So Peter writes, For we were not making up clever stories when we told you about the powerful coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We saw his majestic splendor with our own eyes when he received glory and honor from God the Father. The voice from the majestic glory of God said to him, This is my dearly beloved Son who brings me great joy. We ourselves heard that voice from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And because of that experience, we have even greater confidence in the message proclaimed by the prophets. You must pay close attention to what they wrote, for their words are like a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and Christ the morning star shines in your hearts. Above all, you must realize that no prophecy in Scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding or from human initiative. No, those prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit and they spoke from God. So now what I'm going to do is I'm going to circle back around and we're going to walk through that using the text as as our outline. And first we're going to answer the question, Isn't the first part of uh, the message we're going to answer this question, isn't Christianity just another fairy tale? So starting back in verse 16, for we were not making up clever stories when we told you about the powerful coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the assumption is, with Peter writing this, is that some people have been going around and saying that what they're doing, what they're living, the life they're living is a lie, that it's hollow, that it's akin to a fairy tale. And this part of the text is coming right after Peter has been exhorting the people in his community to live well in light of the fact that Jesus is going to return. He said that he, Peter, is going to be killed soon, something Jesus let him know was going to happen, For these beliefs, he was going to be killed and people needed to think about what they were doing, thinking and saying because it all had an impact on real life, on the relationship with God and he was wanting to make sure they knew that. And so because of these teachings, which were echoing the teachings of Jesus, people were accusing him of living a dream. There's no Jesus returning, they would say. So either they just wouldn't believe that Jesus was Messiah or they would have something, here's a fancy term, they would have an over-realized eschatology, thinking that the end times had already come and gone, and they were just living it, and that was it. Or they would say, perhaps, that this, the second coming of Jesus was just going to happen spiritually, that there was going to be no physical second coming of Jesus. For whatever reason, they were denying what they were saying was the truth. They were saying that Peter and his friends have bought into a lie, and now that they were teaching it. They were teaching, as we sung this morning, even so come, Lord Jesus. One question I have, well, two, but one question I I have immediately when I read this is, well, what would be in it for them? If they're making up these stories, what's in it for them in order to do that? So we want to have that going on in the back of our minds. What would it benefit them? And, And then the second one, just from the text itself, is what does Peter mean by the powerful coming of our Lord Jesus Christ? So let's keep going. Peter writes, We saw his majestic splendor with our own eyes when he received honor and glory from God the Father. The voice from the majestic glory of God said to him, This is my dearly beloved Son who brings me great joy. We ourselves heard that voice from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So if you're reading that and you're wondering what Peter's talking about, he's talking about something called the transfiguration. Transfiguration you can read this story if you go through Matthew 17 or Mark 9 or Luke 9. I'm going to read just a few verses from Luke, just so we're all on the same page. So Jesus took Peter, John, and James. These are three of his closest disciples. He took Peter, John, and James up to a mountain to pray. And as he, Jesus, was praying, the appearance of his face, it was transformed, and his clothes became dazzling white. And suddenly, two men, Moses and Elijah, and if you're not too sure who Moses and Elijah are, these two are heavyweights in the Old Testament, the people of is Sorry, pardon me, people of Israel. They were great leaders, prophets, and also hadn't been on earth for many, many centuries. And so Moses and Elijah, they appeared, and they began talking with Jesus. So they're watching this conversation. They were glorious to see, he says, and, and that's probably the understatement of the Bible right there. And they're speaking, Jesus Elijah and Moses were talking about his exodus, Jesus' exodus from the world, and what he means by that is is his death, resurrection, and ascension as he was going to leave, which was about to be filled, fulfilled, sorry, in Jerusalem. So this is what's going on. This is an amazing scene. I wish we could dive deep into it because it is pregnant with meaning. There's all kinds of prophecy being fulfilled in this situation, and the, the... Symbolism and, and all of these things, it, it's just amazing, but we, we need to move on. But what we need to understand is Peter's saying, he goes, "I saw this with my own eyes. I saw it. I, I'm giving testimony here, and it wasn't just me, there was other people there too, and they witnessed this. Fact-check me," he says. So this furthers that question. So Peter knows he's going to be dying for his beliefs. Why would he die? For something now that he is claiming is true, that he's experienced, if he would know if it wasn't true or not. And the other question is, how does this impact them? How did this experience impact them? Verse 19, because of that experience, and we really need to key in on, on these words right here, because of that experience, we have even greater confidence in the message proclaimed by the prophets, says, you must pay close, close attention to what they wrote for their words are like a lamp shining in a dark place until that day dawns and Christ the morning star shines in your hearts. So it's because of what they, they saw and heard and maybe smelled and touched and felt they have greater trust in what they have been taught. Some of you may not know, but you guys actually have a, a prophet in your midst. I, I was told by one Jason Wall, that this stool can hold my weight. And I believe Jason. I believe what I've been taught. But how much more? He proclaimed it to me, actually. It was was quite special. But how much more will I believe him when... Oh, just kidding. When, When I sit on it. And it actually holds my weight. See... It's one thing to be taught something, told something, and it's another thing to be able to experience it for ourselves. Peter and his pals, they'd been taught that God was doing really big things through Jesus. But now they were actually getting to experience it. They're getting to see it with their own eyes, and now they were really believing because of that experience, he says, So just like you'd expect from somebody who has information of infinite value, Peter is wanting to pass this on. He's ensuring they get this message before he dies. In other words, Peter's saying, we didn't create this story. We're just telling you God's story. The prophets have been pointing to what would happen, and now we've seen it happen. So listen to these prophets, because their words are like a lamp shining in a dark place. Until the day dawns and Christ, the morning star, shines in your hearts. And friends, fairy tale or not, these are some beautiful, beautiful words. But but Chris, someone might say, aren't those words just written by men with an agenda? Of course, they would say that. Peter, what, what do you say? Verse twenty. Above all, you must realize that no prophecy in Scripture ever came about from the prophet's own understanding or from human initiative. No, those prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit and they spoke from God. So what Peter's getting at here is something called inspiration, that God inspired the writers to be able to write what they wrote. So so how do we know we can trust that? Someone might ask. And in a name, Sunday school answer, anyone? Jesus. Jesus. Jesus believed in the authority of Scripture. Whenever Jesus came face-to-face with someone like the devil or uh, false teachers or anybody else, Jesus always relied on the Scriptures to point people in the right direction. As Andy Stanley likes to say, whenever someone predicts their own death and resurrection and then actually does it, that's that's the kind of person that you want to pay attention to. So when we think about that, a good reason to believe, remember we're, we're in our series on doubt and we, we want to put our thinking caps on a bit. We want to be good apologists. Remember not saying our sorry, but, but being able to explain our faith a little bit with some reasoning. We want to be able to talk about the resurrection of Jesus. And there's many, many, many good reasons. You can look up Google. I I encourage you to look up the minimal facts for the reasons to believe Jesus rose from the dead. There's lots of them. There's the fact that he was crucified, the empty tomb, all the appearances. If you look at Paul in Corinthians, he says, you can fact check me. This all happened. I'm writing this down within the generation of people that are still alive, over 500 people. You can go and talk to them. Maybe one of them wouldn't be willing to die for a lie Many, many reasons, but the one that I want to really point to this morning is the lives of his followers, as we've already been discussing, and their willingness to lose those lives for Jesus' sake. I really love this quote by Charles Colson, and if you don't know who that is, uh, he was a a politician embroiled in the Watergate scandal in the 1970s, and if you don't know what that is, that was a, a political scandal that embroiled some of the most powerful people in the world, including then-President Richard Nixon, who was eventually impe- impeached because of his involvement in this. And then Colson, among many others, went to prison. And afterwards, he wrote this about the resurrection after coming to know Jesus. He writes, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. That is the key right there. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep a lie for three weeks. (laughs) You're telling me 12 apostles could keep a lie for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. Absolutely impossible. They understood that it was real, and they were living it. They were living it. So, there, like I said, there's many more facts that you can look into. But maybe, maybe you're thinking, "Okay, Chris, uh, my, my you know what meter is going off, and it sounds to me like you're trying to prove the Bible with the Bible. is not a circular argument." I get that objection. I, under, I understand why someone would say that. But we need to understand that the reasons here uh, that we're thinking about, the reasons that we're we're listing for why we believe the Bible is true is that, first of all, there's this assumption that the Bible would never have been written if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. There there would be no Bible, at least no New Testament, if Jesus hadn't risen from the dead because they would have just gone home. You don't write a, a fiction book and get killed for it for something that didn't actually happen. Moreover, the Bible wasn't just written over the course of a weekend. It it was written over like 1,500 years by 40 different authors that God used to give us the same message, pointing in the same direction, that God is there and that he cares about his creation and that he has this beautiful future in line for us. See, I I believe in in the authority of of the Bible because Jesus affirmed it but also because of the experience that I've had of God's Spirit in my life, and I've seen it in others. See, God, for me, is the best explanation for the creation of the world around me, for the objective morality that I see, for being able to say that evil and suffering can actually be redeemed. I believe that without the God that we meet both in the pages of the Bible and out in nature, life devolves into meaninglessness and hopelessness. You see, I've lived that life, and I thank God for pulling me through it. But it's not just me that believes this, right? There, today, around the world, there are countless millions and millions of people many people in this room, many people celebrating Lord Jesus in churches all around us that would affirm this same testimony for the same reasons that I've given. This testimony indeed is passed down through the ages for millennia for these same reasons and it all started with the God speaking life into motion and then speaking to his prophets and then their words being corroborated in real life as they came to pass? So the, the answer, my friends, is, is no. Christianity isn't just another fairy tale. Experience and, and the biblical witness testify to its reality. This is for real. Now, if I have given you any impression this morning, though, that the struggle over whether it's true or not isn't real, then I apologize for that because I know. I know that it's real. Like I said, I've lived it, and I still, from time to time, have to take my mind captive as doubts enter into them, and I have to think about some of these reasons and, and rely on my own experience. Because sometimes it's understood that because we can't see, smell, taste, touch, hear, or feel God on demand, that he's not there. I get that. Someone can tell us that God's there. They can say it with absolute certainty and conviction. Praise Jesus. He's there. But unless we know it, then it's like a fairy tale. So with our time remaining, I just want to explore the question behind the question, and that's why do people come to the conclusion that Christianity is just a fairy tale, and I'm going to quickly cover uh, two and then finish with a third. So three reasons. The first one is that maybe somebody's tried to meet God, and he didn't show up the way that they were told he would or the way that they thought he would. They were told he's there, and then they went looking for him, perhaps with their own idea in mind. It's like the other day, Sarah and I were sitting on the couch. Sarah's my wife. Uh, she, we're sitting on the couch. She says, Chris, can you go grab whatever it was from the uh, cupboard? And I say, okay. Now, either it was because I had something else in how it looked in my mind or because I'm a guy. I walked into the cupboard, and I'm looking around, looking around, and I walk back, and I sit down, and I'm like, oh, it's not there. We must be out of it. And Sarah, she's very kind and gracious. She rolled her eyes, but not on the outside, just on the inside. And she gets she gets up and, and she goes and she's back like five seconds later and I'm with it in her hand. And I'm like, naively, where was it? As if it wasn't in the same place that she told me it would be. You guys know exactly where it was. See, sometimes we, we go looking for something with the wrong thing in mind. And so something that's very real is when we try faith and it doesn't do what we expect it to do. It doesn't look like we want it to. We try and try and try and we expect God to heal or provide or whatever and he doesn't. In a sense, we've put up this barrier imposing on God what we think he should do because we have expectations for him. So, when he doesn't perform, we think that he's not even there. So what do we do? We give up. We think that there's no power or redemption in the gospel because it didn't do what we needed it to do. We think it it must be just a fairy tale. Friends, when things don't go the way we want, it it doesn't mean that God's not there. It probably just means we just need to reevaluate what we want. We need to understand who God is and engage with him on his terms, not make him the God of our understanding and expect him to engage with us on our terms. So that's the first reason. Second is maybe, and this is a much shorter reason, maybe someone just doesn't want God to be there in the first place. Uh, There's a professor of philosophy at New York University, his name's Thomas Nagel, and he's quoted as saying, I want atheism to be true... And I'm made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well informed people I know are religious believers. Thanks. Like, I'll take that. But he says, continues I don't want there to be a God, I don't want the universe to be like that. So it's pretty straightforward. It's just a a volitional will type thing. I just don't want there to be be God. And and if you're here today and you can identify with that, or or maybe you know someone in that space, I just encourage you to wrestle, to keep wrestling with some of these things that we've talked about, but then keep digging into it. And so finally, the one I want to discuss, and this one is for the church. So if you aren't a believer here today and, and you've come, first of all, if I haven't made it clear, I'm really, really glad that you've chosen to join us today. But what I want to talk about right now is, is for church family. But yeah, I, I'm glad you're here to listen to it because it's a little bit of a, a look behind the curtain for us, or for you and to be able to help you see something near and dear to our hearts. So I, just, I, I want to start with a question. Church, do you know why I think that probably maybe the main reason why people look at Christianity and think it's just a fairy tale? Do you want to know why people look at what we believe, both from inside and and outside our church communities, and wonder whether or not it's true? It's because we often don't act like it is. Church, we we need to own this. I'll I'll speak for myself. I I need to own this because I will verbally affirm, I'll come and, and through my day, I'll verbally affirm texts like today that Peter saw Jesus come in power on a hill with his friends and that Jesus died and rose again for my sins. I will affirm that because of that, I can live in power and live changed life, lived a changed life. I affirm that Jesus said that I would do greater things than even he would with my life after coming to faith in him because his spirit courses through me. I affirm that. But I don't think I always live that in power. Now, what do I mean by that? I'm gonna get to that in a second because what we wanna do is we wanna take that idea and we wanna put it on something, rest it somewhere that is cultural and true about our society, and that is our society is in desperate need for something to believe in, for something to cling to for meaning in life. Probably not, but has anyone heard of of Greta Thunberg? For those of you who haven't, she's a uh, climate activist and, and the one that's behind the school striking, and please, please, please don't think activism or politics or anything like that. I want to stick with meaning, so let's, let's stay there, okay? The other day, Greta writes, before I started school striking, I had no energy, no friends, and I didn't speak to anyone. She put this on Twitter. I sat alone at home in my room with an eating disorder. All of that is gone now since I have found a meaning in a world that sometimes seems shallow and meaningless to so many people. See, in that one little message, Greta has summed up probably the biggest crisis in our culture today, and that's a crisis of meaning. People are hungry for meaning in their life. She says, my identity was a little girl alone in my room, and now it is a global climate activist with a platform higher than most people on earth, and I cling now to that. So as we think about that, Peter's words loom large, don't they? When he wrote, because of that experience, because of getting to see Jesus in power, we are changed really changed. Our lives have true meaning, and this is where we get our identity. See, people are desperate to find out why they're here, what the meaning of life is, so much so that they are willing to create meaning for themselves. And if that's you, I get it. I tried to create meaning in my own life for years, but I've come to believe that I don't get to just create meaning for my life. The meaning is conveyed by a creator, not the creation. But it's easy to buy into what the culture's selling, isn't it, when it's all around us? So I I don't blame anyone for thinking that or even falling into a rut of living like that because it is so prevalent. Another somewhat unknown person, maybe, C.S. Lewis, he, uh, of Chronicles of Narnia fame, he once struggled to believe in the fairy tale of Christianity. And he had a friend... His friend was named J.R.R. Tolkien of Lord of the Rings fame, and he spent many, many hours discussing what reality looked like, really looked like, with his friend Jack, as C.S. Lewis was known as. So this is a little bit of an excerpt from a dramatized conversation based on their communication. So Jack starts off, Lewis starts off by saying, you can't seriously believe in fairy tales. Why not? I can. In fact, I do. But this is preposterous. How can you seriously believe a lie? No, Jack, myths are not lies. In fact, they are the very opposites of a lie. Myths convey the essential truths, the primary reality of life itself. Go on. Well, you see, we have been duped into using the word myth as being synonymous with a lie because we have been duped into accepting the first real lie of materialism. And what is that? That is the hideous claim that there is no supernatural order to the universe. The materialists have imprisoned us in a world of mere matter, of physical facts, divorced from and devoid of metaphysical truth. Well, I say they are lying. I would say they are the ones who have come up with a false myth. Their world doesn't exist. See, but the problem is, though, is they have convinced us that it is True. They have made us believe that this is all there is. Three dimensions, five senses, four walls. Isn't it? Most emphatically not. Jack, the four walls of materialism are the four walls of a prison and the materialists are our jailers. Friends, the world we live in is an enchanted world. And the reason why it's an enchanted world is because God is the seat of reality. He's the ultimate reality himself. And because of this deep and ancient truth, those who believe in him and follow him should live lives entirely for him. And this most often means lives live different from those around them. Recently, there was a story in the news that surrounded the shooting of a Innocent black man, and I'll just read you the the background so you know where we're at. On September 6, 2018, off-duty Dallas Police Department officer, patrol officer, Amber Geiger entered the Dallas, Texas apartment of Botham John and shot and killed him. On October 1, 2019, so just a couple of days ago, Geiger was found guilty of murder. The next day, she received a sentence of 10 years in prison, so just a few days ago. We have a we have a video, and this happened at the hearing. This is his brother, who uh, is testifying at the hearing, and sp- he's speaking to his brother's killer.
1: I don't even want you to go to jail. I want the best for you because I know that's what that's exactly what both of them would want you to do. I don't know if this is possible, but can can I give her a hug, please? Please. Yes.
0: See that, my friends, is just one example. One example of what living in the light of the grace of Jesus can do in a person's life, and that sort of forgiveness should be normative for us. See, I, I don't know about you, but when people tell the tale of, of my faith journey, I, I want it to be of the genuine variety, not the not the fairy tale variety. I don't want to just insert myself into the story like I, I did with Jaws. I, I want God to be my ultimate reality all the time. I, I want to fearlessly put myself out there for the sake of the gospel like Brent Jean in the video we just watched does. Francis Chan is quoted as saying, our greatest fear should not be the failure of succeeding at things in life or, sorry, our greatest fear should not be of failure but of succeeding at things in life that don't really matter. And what matters? What does Peter keep pointing to? And he keeps pointing to the power of Jesus in the lives of people. He's pointing to the hope, this beautiful, beautiful hope that Jesus gives his church to give to the world. Remember what he said because of that experience. And we want to be able to say, because of our experience, we have even greater confidence in the message proclaimed by the prophets because these prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit and they spoke for God. So, as we close, I I just want to be real with you and I want to confess my own lack of faith. And I want to invite anybody, anyone who feels the same way, to ask God's forgiveness. For living even some of the time as though his power doesn't course through us. For living like this is just a fairy tale. And if you're here today and if you're not a believer, again, I'm so glad that you came. And I want to invite you though to to take a chance and to taste and see that the Lord is good. You can, you can repent of your sins, you can turn towards God, and, and then let's see together what meaning in this life is really all about. Would you pray with me? Father, oh, Father, man, what a powerful witness it is to see people, to see with our own eyes your grace active in people's lives. We're so thankful for our brother Brent and and his amazing testimony to the world. How many millions of people now have seen your love in action through his fearlessness, for his selflessness? Lord, we want to be people that do that. People in your church, we want to do that, Lord. But there's so many things that distract us. There's so many things that pull at our attention. And so, Father... I I want to repent of that in my life. Maybe there's some people here today that want to repent of that as well. And so, Father, we pray that you will accept this repentance, that your spirit will fill us, will ignite in us a passion to be able to live the reality of you year to year, week to week, day to day, moment to moment. Father, we love you. And we lift this all up in the precious name of your son, Jesus. Amen.